This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Doug Collum. Powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. As usual, we're broadcasting live from the campus here in downtown San Francisco. Um, For anybody who's interested, it's exactly 80 degrees outside on a warm autumn afternoon. And it's exactly the kind of day where we're all wondering why we're inside. But in any event, that's that's neither here nor there. We've got two great guests this program. Uh, Coming up on the first hour... I'll be speaking with Farhad Farabakshian, who's the co-founder and CEO of Naked Labs, a Silicon Valley-based fitness startup, which has created the first 3D body scanner that provides really all the biometric data about your body that you could want, and maybe even a little bit more. And then in our second hour, um, completely different subject, we'll be uh, talking with Clarissa Shen, who's the COO, the Chief Operating Officer of Udacity, which is an online education provider that that offers courses on a whole array of technical subjects, self-driving cars, artificial intelligence, robotics, and the like. So it'll be an interesting program. Um, For those of you who are just joining us today, this program, as always, is focused on entrepreneurship and startups and venture capital with a predominant concentration on companies here located in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we, we do broadcast live every Monday at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific. That's 7 p.m. Eastern. And uh, we like to think that that is a nice way to spend your commute rush hour when you're driving to or from the office. Um, you know, one thing about San Francisco as I talk about it, um, we, you know, we do talk frequently about some of the issues that are be confronting the San Francisco Bay Area in general namely traffic congestion and the cost of living. And I pulled up some additional, some additional data uh, just as a, a matter of interest. Um, so San Francisco City proper has a population of about 900,000 people. The metropolitan area, which is the entire county, is uh, almost 5 million, 4.6 million. And then if you look at the, in, at the nine counties that comprise the Bay Area in general, that's about 9 million people. And there's a lot, of talk, a lot of talk these days about people leaving the Bay Area. And it makes you think like it is a net drain. And even the surveys that have been recently conducted, the surveys are pretty dramatic. They indicate that of the people surveyed, whether they're a workforce sampling or just a residential sampling, it's almost 50% of those people who are part of those surveys talk about, you know, at least thinking about moving away from California because of the high cost of living. But what's interesting is, in fact, if you look at the net population here in San Francisco and in the Bay Area in general, it continues to increase. And and what's happening is that even though people may be leaving the Bay Area, the fact is a lot more people are coming into it. And they're drawn by, uh, for, I mean, no, no surprise, this hyper-growth phase that the technology sector is in right now. And um, it, it does create problems, but it's also... I mean, I would have to say the economy around here is white hot, and that's why, frankly, why we're able to get some great guests to come on board the program, because 
if you look at the South of Market area, you look at San Francisco in general, you look at the, you know, the various counties around the uh, the Bay. I mean, there is just a ton of technology companies and workers and things that are going on. So it's a, it's a thriving ecosystem for sure. So enough said on this. Let's jump into it. Um, this is a talk show, by the way. If you have questions, you can reach us by phone at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And now let's jump into it. So we're joined now here in the studio by our first guest, Farhad Farabakshian who's the co-founder and CEO of Naked Labs. <clears throat> Farhad, welcome to the program. Hi, Doug. So maybe we can start by, you can tell us what, what your company's about. Uh, my company, Naked Labs, uh, we've built the world's first home body scanner. And it's effectively a mirror embedded with sensors that when you stand in front of it, it scans your body within about 15 seconds. And on your mobile app shows you a 3D grayscale image of your body you can rotate in 360 and fully understand what is happening to your body with precision that even after two three days you can understand whether the workout you did or the meal you ate had a positive or negative impact on your body and it's i mean just to describe that it's it's a physical product it's like a full-length mirror as i recall seeing from the pictures of it that is correct a full-length mirror and you stand on a scale in front of the mirror and the scale rotates. Like if you if you're not careful, you'll fall off. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're not careful, you might fall off. But it's a it's a good test of your balance. Uh, we've had none of that, no issues with that so yeah. far. Um, but yes, uh, that that could potentially happen. What uh, what Mashable called it uh, is this is the real black mirror because it is actually a black uh, mirror that you place in your bedroom or what we've seen people do is put in their living room. So the, the premise is that instead of stepping just on a scale, you step on this little rotating disc. Mm-hmm. And you spin in front of the mirror. 15 seconds later, it produces a scan. Yeah. And you can't hide from the truth. All the, all the metrics that you would want are there on your, on your cell phone. Yeah, it's, um, it's it basically, it's, I think we think about it this way. A picture um, tells a thousand words. And a scan tells a thousand pictures. So it's it's a really effective way of having a diary of what's happening to you and being able to look back how you did last week or what you were a year ago and how things have changed over time and being able to understand how different types of stimuli affect your overall health. Yep, got it. So Farhad, let's talk about you. So what brought you here? I mean, start maybe with... Um I don't know, you're, you're, you know, where you came from, your education. Yeah. Can you give us some background as to what brought you to this point in time? To, uh, to the Bay, okay, that's a, yeah. Um, well, I was born in Iran, uh, raised and grew up in New Zealand, and then went to school in Oregon where I studied electrical engineering and computer science, got my master's from Oregon State, worked at a company called Maxim Integrated as a, Radio frequency integrated circuit designer, where I built chips that went into cars and phones. Uh, and then, after working for several years as an engineer at Maxim, there was an opportunity to kind of switch to product management. Uh, but that role was in San Jose. Um, so I moved from Oregon to San Jose, uh, where I became a product manager and kind of took over a small little business and grew it from there. So, so pause there. So, how old is so you were in? college the first time you came to the u.s no um i i started college the first time i came to the u.s i was uh, 16 
So oh, okay. I was I was in I came to US and I did my senior year in Oregon. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. really? Yeah. And then how did you pick Oregon? Was it just a school that caught your interest and you got in and figured this is a place to go? No. No, my father is an agricultural engineer yeah. and uh Oregon is where him and one of his, you know, long, lifelong friends decided to start a business. Yeah. Uh so you could say he's somewhat entrepreneurial as well. And uh, we is he just, still here in the U.S.? He's still in the U.S. Oregon. In, in yeah. Oregon, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, enjoying the nice rainy weather there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's how we that's how we ended up in Oregon. And Maxim is so it's a it's a fabulous chip company that makes, as you say, radio circuits. Is that the idea? Well, they make pretty much everything. They're yeah. one of the biggest companies you've never heard of. Uh, Based in Oregon as well? No, they just have a design center okay. in Oregon. Yep. They're, they're actually headquartered in San Jose, yep. which is why the, you know a lot of the decision making was here. So they wanted me to move here. Um, but they're a um, they're a multi billion dollar company with you know thousands of employees. And when you joined it, were they a public company with lots of employees yes, at that time? Yes, they were always. So you you jumped from you jumped into a big company. I jumped into a big company. Okay, so yes. that now I've teed this up. Now I want to yeah. know how you made the jump from a big secure employment gig with yeah. a company like Maxim. And then your next jump was to a startup. Is that right? That's or correct. Did, was yeah. it an interim step? No, there was no interim step. Yeah. So what possessed you? Um, that's a good question. So I, I started out, like I said, in a very technical role. And then I moved into product management. Uh, the, the product line I started managing was around the $17 million a year business. So it was small. And I was actually failing. Uh, so they were, uh, at the time they were like, Hey, you know, let's give it to this young guy and, and, and they... <laughs> make sure he does. See if he's going to screw it up. See if he's going to screw it up. Cause if he does, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I took over the, the, the business and it actually, many, can I, yeah. I want to interrupt cause I am interested in this. Yeah. How many people were in that unit? I mean, I assume you have some management responsibility when they put you into that role. Uh, it, into that role, uh, at the time, I had, like, it was small. Yeah. It was a small business okay. unit. Yeah. And my direct reports were, like, at the time. Like, when I first stepped in as a product manager, I had no direct reports. Right. You were the it, was, guy. it was a kind yeah. of a lateral. It was like, hey, you're responsible for working with engineering, with okay. applications, with pretty much the whole company supply chain yep. to make sure this business grows with no P&L responsibility. Yeah. Um, and uh, when, I, when I came in, uh, I just it, – it was, it was actually – I took over that business in 2009 when everything was down, um, which was kind of a good thing, right? Because I could. Because it, it's a low bar. It's a low bar. <laughs> so yeah. You, so you that, can, that was actually. You can only improve it. You can only improve it. Yeah. So I, I actually, you know, that that was I, I was quite fortunate to be in that position, at least on the timing side. But the business wasn't like yeah. a thriving business. Yeah. Um, but I did grow the business. I, I grew that business to about a forty million dollar year business. Whoa. Um, which you know they're, they, they're they're not huge numbers, but to grow that. You know, with a small team, and your responsibilities easy. would scale correspondingly. I assume. Yes, they did after um, the business grew because it was kind of surprising to some of the people at yeah. Maxim. I got more responsibility, so then I got promoted within the company. Um, before I left, you know, the business was close to 100 million and big. Um, yeah, I had you know we, we had bigger teams, and you yeah, know, I, my responsibilities grew and. It, it was a lot of fun. It gave me a lot of confidence. And Farhad, at that point, yeah. you were in San Jose. I was in San Jose. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so continue. Um, and, like, it it was fun. I, I liked that, the role that at Maxim. Before I left, I was director, um, that director of uh, product and business management. Um, so I'm 
I mean, just in point of fact, you're yeah. evolving out of a pure engineering role yep. into something where you're, it's more management-oriented. Yeah, P&L right? responsibility. Okay. Yeah. Management, um, basically responsible for all facets, facets of the business. Driving the roadmap, meeting with customers, understanding product requirements, yeah. growing sales with those customers. Yeah. Um, so it was effect the way they articulated the role within Maxim was um, you're a CEO of your own business. But you still have to work with so supply chain and finance were separate, but R and D and marketing were all under uh, under under my responsibility. So a great background. It was great, and you uh, you get used to just dealing with terrible situations, um, and people given the role and it's people called crisis management. Yeah, <laughs> crisis <laughs> management. <laughs> given the role, people just kind of came to you and say, "Hey, this this is broken," uh, and it yeah. all kind of ended with you. And you know, you you have delivery issues with like a Japanese customer, and they'll fly someone to sit next to your cube until it's fixed and, yeah. and you could yeah. imagine when things start ramping up and or when people order within lead time um so i got good at just kind of rolling with the punches and kind of handling any situation that arises what was the catalyst that, that inspired the jump from, from pure engineering no from maxim to naked to naked labs yeah uh i so i worked at actually as a spin instructor um at yeah. bay clubs and i always saw like just Fitness and tech have always kind of been really important to me. Yeah. And the way uh, kind of fitness was evolving and kind of data around health was evolving was just at a pace that didn't, didn't match the rest of the other verticals and the rest of the industry. Um, and I saw a real opportunity there. And I've always wanted to do something. I like to build things. Uh, I loved Legos growing up. And I, I always just experimented with things. And um, having kind of grown the business at Maxim, I felt pretty confident that I could figure it out. Um, so I left, actually, six months after I got promoted at Maxim, I left to start uh, Naked Labs with my co-founder. So, so I, this is where I want to ask you a question. I mean, that's a leap of faith, right? Because yeah. you've you, you got, you got a great job. You know, your folks are thinking, God, Farhad's just knocking the shit out of it. Yeah. And now you're, you're saying, wait a second, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this security behind. Yeah. And now I'm going to go and do my own startup. Had, had, wait, did you quit your job before you had traction on your start absolutely i had done you nothing did. yeah I, I had done nothing um I, I had ideas yeah um but that's all i had did, had you met the co your co-founder ed slater at that point i i had met ed yeah like we were we were friends yeah but i had no idea he would be my co-founder at the time wow yeah it's like running off a cliff and hoping you're going to grow wings before you hit the bottom that's exactly it in fact i i read a book by uh ben horowitz called the hard thing about hard things uh, I've, I've read I, the title I, okay. I, I enjoyed it very much and one of the things he says in the book is when driving off a cliff don't leave any skid marks <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's great and yeah. that that I've, I've i've said that at at naked probably like a hundred times yeah so um if i feel like if you're gonna because i remember i was at naked i was at maxim and like I would get all these ideas, and then I would start working on them at nights and weekends um, throughout my you know five and a half years there. And then someone would come out with the idea, and I'd be like, gosh, I had that idea. Yeah. And then it, it's the ideas are easy, right? Everyone's got ideas. Bringing that idea to life, that's, that's, that's what the challenge Execution. is. Execution. So for people just joining us, uh, our guest this hour is Farhad Farabakshian, who's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Naked Labs, which does a... It's a full 3D body scanner that provides all kinds of measurements about how you're – instead of stepping on a scale, you step on this – you step in front of a mirror, and you get amazing inputs. So we're talking about 
<clears throat> it always intrigues me. I mean, I'm a lawyer by training, and I'm totally risk adverse. So what you're talking about right now, about basically quitting your job and you know, just working on the assumption, you're planning for success. You're going to get traction. You're going to form this company. You had an idea, and now you're focused on execution. Mm-hmm. So um, you bumped into Ed, or you were fr- he and you and he were friends. We're friends. And so, take what was the next important step in the in the creation of the company? Um, it so after leaving Maxim, it was about fe- feasibility study on the idea. Yeah. Um, and like how, having been an engineer, I could kind of do the feasibility study. So, what myself. is a feasibility study? Uh, making sure your idea can actually come to life. Like, is a technology available out there at the level you need to build it so it's not just product customer fit it's it's the whole panoply of issues that need to be built into what a startup company does that's correct okay yeah i think yeah yeah, i mean that's also extremely important but for for us that came later like first we had to actually see can you scan a human being in 3d oh yeah basic questions like can you actually do that yeah um and then you figure out whether the market actually would appreciate that yeah um, so that was kind of the first piece. And then we did like a really hacky uh, demo at Bay Clubs where I worked. Um, but I, I had, you know, when I remember I had coffee with Ed and I told him about the idea. And he's like, man, that's crazy. But yeah, I love it. Yeah. So then uh, we started kind of just, and we had no funding. I mean, I come from, uh, I, I came from a big company. I had no VC connections, yeah. um, none of that. And actually, the first initial checks for the company came from you know Maxim C level people because they had seen me. They had confidence in you. They had confidence in me, um, yeah. which was funny because I left and they're like, "Okay, well, we still believe in you. Here's yeah. here's you know 100k check here and there," um, and and I owe them uh, a lot for that for believing in, in me and the company and the team. Um, so so let's at this point because. Um, Sort of keeping this in suspense, talk about the company a little bit. If I mean, it's, I always think it's important or helpful to people listening about, you know, give us a snapshot of the company. You know, where is it? How many employees? Is it venture backed, and how much? I mean, give us some basic uh, metrics for the company. Yeah, we're roughly around fifty employees. Yep. Uh, distributed uh, throughout uh, the U- actually, we have one office in Redwood City, which is our HQ. Yep. We have another office in Graz. Austria. Yep. Really? Yeah. You're international. We're international. Wow. And we have also an office in China because we manufacture the products with Flextronics in Zhuhai. So, so three three offices. Yep, and three offices. Uh, where are your employees? Mostly in Redwood City? Mostly, I would say, um, 60% Redwood City and 25% Austria and, and the rest in China. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. And venture-backed? That's correct. And so how much, I mean, is it publicly available? How much money have you guys well, raised? Yeah, what's publicly available is that we've raised you know, $14 million to date with Founders Fund as our lead uh, for our series. So, so Founders Fund, for people, is a, is a well-known institutional VC firm. And this sounds, Farhad, like it's a Series A financing. So this is a, did you do a seed round as well? We did. And I, I think I saw in the, in the background information that you, you did some funding through AngelList. Is that right? We no, did not. Did no. not. I th- maybe I mistook that. In any event, um, so you've got a company. You've got 50 employees. I mean, I, I think this is pretty cool because here you're jumping out of a big chip company with an engineering degree and kind of your first foray into, into management. And your next, your next slide is let's go do a startup company. 
and uh, I'll make it work. Mm-hmm. And Ed thought you were crazy, but he came on board as well. Yeah, yeah. Ed's uh, so my co-founder. Ed, he is a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. by trade, uh, and he had he was just graduating from his MBA from Kellogg, and he he was I think probably the only person in his class that didn't want to go to a big company. Uh, he wanted to. He Ed's also a builder, and uh, we had really complementary skill sets. Him strong on the mechanicals, uh, me strong on the electricals and software side, and both of us um, understood. He's on the business side; he's a lot more fine on the finance side, and yeah. me was a, I was on the operational side. So we kind of was really complementary for us to actually work together and be able to build uh, the initial prototypes, and at the same time uh, understand uh, what it takes to at least initially be able to demonstrate some level of product market fit. So, so I'm, cu- I'm curious to know because you guys, so you, you had this idea. You're doing, you're a spin instructor at, at an athletic club. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, God, I've got a great idea. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a crazy idea. And you said, how, how quickly can I come on board? And I get the fact that you've got, you know, ready-made customers kind of every time they show up for a class. They all want to step on in front of a mirror. And you said you hacked together kind of a prototype product. Talk a little bit about what you did to assess the larger market. How big is the market for this kind of product? It's yeah. not, uh, not just 3D scanners, but I know there's a lot of uh, interest these days by consumers in health and health-type applications. Yeah. I mean, did you do that kind of assessment when you did your feasibility study? I think we did it. Um, and like at my last job, it's just, you know, you got to throw out your SAM and TAM numbers uh, to at least show, hey, this could be huge. And for people who don't know, SAM and TAM mean what? Total available market, serviceable available market. Okay. Um, just to kind of paint a picture uh, of how the, how big the market is. You don't want to go after a market that you may have an amazing product for that is way too small. Um, or at least you know, people won't fund your company if you want to do that. Yeah. Um, and for us, we did that. But I think when whenever you're bringing something new to world, whenever you're building a new category, it, it's hard to connect those large markets to what you're doing. You can, of course, you can have your assumptions, but at the end of the day, you have to believe that this will become a thing because the nutrition and weight loss market is a $61 billion market. You know, the fitness equipment plus gym market is a $40 billion a year market. Um, these are massive, massive so, so markets. So I want to I want to dig down into a point you made, which you, you you skimmed over, but I think is important. So at some point, if you dial forward, you're sitting down in front of a group of investors mm-hmm. and pitching yeah. your product. And you talked about total available market, TAM, yeah. and then service serviceable available market. And SAM is a subset of TAM. That's is correct. that right? That's correct. So when you're pitching before an investor – what is it that they are looking for? What is it you provided to them in the way of this? This is this this is the size of the sucking sound of this market, and it's a real market. This is something that we really think we can we can penetrate when we have a product. Can you what what is that? Can you talk about what that what that concept is? Yeah. Um, so Sam is what you plan to address in that total available market, and and I'm probably going to say something that. Uh, it might be controversial, but I always, to me, when you are building a new category product, uh, I think you can have your assumptions, 
but it's it's really hard to provide an accurate number for your SAM number even. It's all based on assumptions, right? Um, so our assumptions initially were, you know, the way, we, the way we approached it was, you know, people who exercise regularly like three times a week yeah. who also own some type of fitness tracker, who also do X. And you have those assumptions, but they change. Um, and I think for for at least my experience, a lot of the investors, that was more of a checkbox that is he th- has he thought about it. Right. Um, How penetrating has his analysis been? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, but I would say at the end of the day, it's it's the ethnographic studies and it's the real uh, qualitative analysis that you've done, at least for us, yeah. on how engaging your product is. Um, yeah. that really uh, you know, helps investors dream because at the end of the day, when you're building something new to the world, people ha- have to be able to dream. They have to see the vision that you see. Yeah, because we're not yeah. doing a, a different version of X. We're not taking something and making it better. We're creating something completely new. Yeah, got it. So again, c- kind of coming back to this, uh, this profile or snapshot of the company, can you offer any metrics like... Um, um, I don't know any comments on business or revenue. I mean, it's you've got a product, mm-hmm. you're selling product, you're out in the market. Yes. And you've got customers and you're showing traction. Yes. And so for us there's 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 really there's two things that we really care for. One is what does it take to acquire a customer? Uh and once we acquire the customer is what is it going to take to keep the customer engaged? And for customer acquisition, what we use uh, as a metric is return on ad spend. Is what? Return on ad spend. Okay. Um, so, like, if you have a good return on ad spend for a company um, that sells, let's say, consumer electronics, you want to be above four, which means if you spend a dollar on ads, you make $4 back in sales slash revenue. And this is a consumer business. This is not – you're not selling product through distribution points. You're going direct-to-consumer? We're doing direct-to-consumer. Well, And that's a tough business, as I understand it, because you have to create awareness. You have to do – director consumer marketing all those things that's correct yeah it's um yeah for us it's always been hard because we have to create something that was already hard to build yeah it's a computer vision product into people's homes yeah and then we had to create awareness around it and make it cool yeah build a strong brand around it and, and then you know be able to scale sales so one last question on this on kind of on this subject and it's always intrigued me i mean you hear these buzzwords when you're you know when you're Created a new product, mm-hmm. and the question that investors like to ask is: Is it a pain point or is it a vitamin? Mm-hmm. And the premise is that you know, is it is it something that people really need, mm-hmm. or is it really more of a, a convenience or a luxury item? I mean, how was that? Did that ever come up in the conversations you had with investors? How it, it relates to the question about how big or how how predictable is the customer market? Yeah. Um. Yeah, it comes up quite frequently. Yeah. What, what 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 pain yeah. are you relieving people of? Yeah. Um, for us, it's it's the way we always answer the question is like if you look at the fitness market and if you look at where all the innovation's gone, it's been on what you're doing to your body. It's been the digitization of what you're doing to your body and what you're putting into your body. You know, you know the, the Fitbits, the Apple Watches, yep. they're yep. measuring yep. steps, heart rate, etc. Um, Peloton, who's doing a phenomenal job right oh, now, yeah, heard a four of billion dollar yeah. company, um, there again, they're measuring what you're doing on the bike and they're providing you with content um, on the bike. So it's the personalization of fitness. But what we haven't seen to date, and what I saw as the most probably the most engaging piece, 
is what's happening to your body. I'll tell you, every January 1st, my spin class would be completely full. And halfway through Feb, like, you know, a chunk of the class is gone. And as an instructor, that sucks. You're like, oh, my playlist getting stale. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, not that I reuse playlists. Right. But, uh, um, yeah. but then what, what you realize is everyone starts out motivated. You know, Jen, everyone comes in super hot. Yeah. Well, you know, after New Year's resolution. But you know, a lot of them give up. And the question is, why is that? Like, it's not a question of how motivated you are. It's a question of how motivated you can stay. And when you when I looked into it, I know it, exactly what you're talking about. There's like a wave of people yeah. that show up at the gym about the first three weeks of January, <laughs> and by the end of January, they're all gone. It, they're all gone. But yeah. it's not for lack of effort because yeah. you, you see them come in and they're yeah. putting in like two hours in yeah. the gym, right? Uh, they're eating salads that night, but <laughs> and, and it, it boils down to when they put in the work, uh, they want to see something happen. And what ends up happening is the first couple of weeks, the the number on the scale changes. Uh, and then the number kind of plateaus. And that's when they start coming up with excuses on why they, you know, for whatever reason, yeah. it's not the right time. But what's actually happening is their bodies are changing. But most of the time, like they're gaining muscle at the same rate as they're losing fat. And they're using weight as the wrong proxy. They don't see the change. They don't, yeah. they don't see the change. Yeah. And we realize if like... If someone actually focused on the part of the market that measures what's happening to your body as opposed to what you're doing to your body, you've closed the feedback loop. You know what you're doing to your body. Yep. You know what you're putting into your body. Now you can measure what's happening and close the loop. So for us, this is the missing piece. This is the, the, the essence of why it is that uh, the 3D body scanner works. Exactly. Yeah. And you could imagine um, what, you know, when people use this over time and when you start to have network effects around this digital body platform that we're creating what like what it can enable you start to understand what works for different body types yep. what doesn't work for different body types and and people say like you know for any specific goal there's so much contradictory information out there yes there is and some of it is actually misleading but there's contradictory information out there because they both work and they both work on different body types yep. um so we're able to quantify that um, we're going to take a short break. I'm Doug Collum. Our guest this hour is Farhad Farabakshian, who's the co-founder and CEO of Naked Labs, a company that does 3D body scanners. And we're talking about uh, we're talking about the company. We're definitely going to pick up more. I want, and we're going to talk to Farhad about um, kind of his role as a CEO of a venture-backed company. It's a whole new foray into this kind of uh, community. Stay with us. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM Channel 132. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio. I'm Doug Collum, your host, and our guest this hour is Farhad Farabakshian, the co-founder and CEO of Naked Labs. And we're, we're talking about Farhad's uh, company. And, you know, it's, it's really trying to figure out how to, how to form a company uh, after leaving a big chip company like Maxim. And um, what's intriguing to me, Farhad, is that when you introduce – so you've got a new product. It's a 3D body scanner. And it's, 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 it's not exactly revolutionary, but there's no comparable product out on the market, is there? No. So it's a full-length full mirror. You stand on a rotating disc that not only weighs you, but 
the mirror scans your body 360 degrees, and then it produces all kinds of data on your cell phone. So it's all a, it's a connected system. Mm-hmm. So the question that intrigues me is how does one go about pricing a product? So you're launching a product, you've got something new, and you're thinking, I, I know what it costs me, which mm-hmm. is one data point, but how do you price it? How did you guys approach that? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. When we initially did the um, – we did it in two chunks. When we did the pre-sell campaign back in 2016, um, we, like you said, we had no idea how to price it. We knew roughly what it was going to cost us to manufacture, um, but we didn't want to do cost-based pricing. Ideally, you, know, you want to get to a point where you can do value-based pricing because the market's going to pay what it's going to pay. Um, and at the time, with the calculations that we had, um, our final price was going to be $1,000. Um, but How did you – was that just a dart throw? We figured out 1000 bucks sounds about right. No, we did, um, we did a round of uh, uh, ethnographic studies, and we brought in – we worked with a company called Gravity Tank at the time to do kind of a light qualitative and, and quantitative study on product features and also what people were willing to pay. For a product so there's a little bit features. of input, like a like a survey. Would you be willing to pay X for this a product like this? Yep, I see. Yeah, and we went on the high end of that, um, based it, on what we saw. So your aspirational price was a thousand bucks to begin with. Aspiration was actually two thousand. What we found. Okay, so that was kind of where you that wanted to be. Yeah, and then and then, but you started. I saw in the press that you started at a, at a much lower price. What was that about? Yeah, so the MSRP. Uh, or the final price on the website was nine ninety nine, a thousand dollars. Yep. Um, and this is back when you founded the company, when or back when you first launched, which was back when we did the pre-sale campaign. And when was that? This was April two thousand and sixteen. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So we did pre-sale campaign, um, and the reason we did a pre-sale campaign, one, um, it was to validate that there was product market fit mm-hmm. on um, from the actual customer side. And we, that is the way you measure that is by sales and by CPA slash return on ad spend. Uh, and CPA is uh, cost per acquisition, how much it takes for you to sell uh, one product. And you bake all that into your, your cost denominator. Is that right? So you're, you're, yes. you're, you're striving for a margin in part. That's, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. And you, don't, you never know what you're going to get on the CPA. And, and that was yeah. kind of an unknown for us. Um, but we wanted to understand actually how the CPA changed as a function of price point, um, to get a good idea of pricing elasticity. So even though the product was nine ninety nine, we launched at four ninety nine, um, and made sure that people understood that this is kind of an introductory offer because you're ordering the product eleven months before you get it. Now that eleven months turned ended up being a lot longer, but um, we did four ninety nine, and after about thirty days, we moved it to five ninety nine. Then 30 days later, so to six ninety nine. So you're juicing the pump in part because you're, it's product introduction, in part because you're still doing a little bit of consumer testing, if you will. That's correct. Yeah. You know, we're kind of creating a sense of FOMO. Like if you don't order it yeah. in the next 30 days, it's gonna you, run out. You're gonna <laughs> have you're gonna pay hundred dollars more after yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and also at the same time, we're we're measuring the cost per acquisition at that price point, or yeah. slash return on ad spend at that price point. Um, and and we what we saw actually is that CPA did go up, but return on ad spend also went up, and it shouldn't uh, because the CPA didn't go up as much as in proportion to the price point. So we were actually, our margins were improving quite a bit at the higher price point. 
Uh, and for us as a small company, when you're first coming out into the market, um, it's and you're going and if there's a lot of demand for your product and you know you're going to be demand limited, you want to make sure you you do that right and you establish a strong brand. Um, and when it came to actually shipping the product, we ship we shipped the product at four uh, thirteen ninety nine thirteen ninety five. Partly because our costs went up during manufacturing, and we took no shortcuts on product quality, um, but also because the return on ad spend that we're seeing at the thirteen, uh, the fourteen hundred dollar price point, and that's your current price. That's point. the current yeah. price point yeah. is actually the same return on ad spend that we were seeing at four ninety nine, five ninety nine, six ninety nine. That's bizarre. You wouldn't expect that. You you wouldn't. I, I'll tell you what. I didn't expect that. Um, yeah. But also, we did that test two years ago. And markets change, and there there are the assumptions and variables are so different now. Yeah, yeah. Um, now that we're actually shipping the product, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's you know this is real, right? And we you you've seen a lot of companies launch a pre-sale campaign that never actually ship, and we're actually shipping this thing, so it feels cool. great. How long have you been shipping then? A couple of years? No, we started we started shipping on August first this year. Oh my God! You're you're right. You're right out of this the, is fresh. Right out of the gate. Yeah, right out of the gate. Yeah. Oh, so this is this is a real time exercise in terms of uh, adjusting or, or tweaking the price of your product to optimize for what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. I mean, you launch with one price, and you, you better keep it there for yeah. a while, or yeah. you have some press issues. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to ask a cliched question, but it's always interesting to hear what answers come back. If if you dial forward. Mm-hmm. I don't know, pick a time frame, three years, five years, something that's with a, it's a far horizon, but it's still reasonably predictable, maybe. Yeah. I mean, where do you see the company? I mean, is it, is it a, kind of a one a one product company with a, an amazing mirror with added, you know, with um, great biometrics that you can glean from it? Or do you see more? Um, yeah. So for us, the company mission has always been about creating this digital body platform. Um, we see the right now we've, we've met with a lot of partners after we actually went live with our launch, we had, you know, significant amount of inbound on, Hey, we'd like to work with you guys because we want to connect to people remotely and, uh, with their consent, have access to their body information so we can provide them with different services. So we see, we really see the value of you being able to coexist in multiple places at once without actually being there and what naked does is it allows you to defy the laws of physics which means you can't be at two places at once and when you start to imagine what could be enabled um once you you know let's hypothetically say everyone has a naked body model and exists in a digital body platform um you know remote medicine remote fitness you know we understand what's happening to your body we can tell you what to eat what to do through machine learning, we can predict certain things, how you will look over time. We can, you know, have you try on clothes without actually ever putting them on and have oh, them yeah. ordered to your home without, you know, buying three sizes and returning at least two of them. We can make sure the airplane seat is adjusted for you. We can. This covers a lot of waterfront it, once, once you have the platform up and going. Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it's yeah. one of those things that once you see it, you realize – it has to exist, and it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And when you start asking the question of when, you have to then answer who. And, yeah. you know, we're trying to be that company. That's cool. Um, before we, sh- we, we shift gears, wh- what are the metrics that mm-hmm. the product provides to a user? So 
right now we offer body fat percentage in the most accurate uh, consumer body fat measurement system uh, in the world. We also measure pretty much any part of your body. So we can tell you how your waist is changing over time, your biceps, quads. We show you side-by-side comparisons in 3D where you can rotate them and see exactly how your metrics are So that do that automatically, or do you have to customize the product to get there? Well, it does it automatically yeah. for you, yeah. What, what, what other metrics? So, so height, I assume kind of any physical measurement that is discernible from an exterior view, view you, can, you can measure. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Wow, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. All right, we're going to shift gears. Financing. So you've right. raised $14 bucks to date, and... Yeah. Um, Principally through your institutional round led by the Founders Fund. Um, how hard was it? I mean, here you're a guy that came out of a big chip company, publicly traded, thousands of employees and so forth. And you're kind of jumping right into the middle of this thing called, you know, startup land. Yeah. Uh, was, was your was your I'm picking my words carefully here. Was your lack of experience in running a venture-backed company an issue when it, when you sat down and started meeting with investors? Absolutely. I mean, yes. I they mean, would say, Farhad, so uh, what have you been doing before you did this, right? Um, yes. I, w- I would say, if I'll answer that question in two ways. One, if you're a serial entrepreneur that's been successful in the past, everything's a the lot easier. The door gets a lot easier. A lot of, you, yeah. First of all, you know people. They yeah. know you can execute. Yeah. Um, but if you're... Um, if you're someone who, uh, let's say, like, you know, Maxim is a well-known company in the chip space, but it's not like a Facebook or a Google yeah, where everyone right. goes, oh, yeah, like, I, I, know, I know that. Oh, I've I know seen them. it before. Yeah. Um, having not, you know, been in the public eye, it's something that people don't recognize. When people understood Naked and that it's like there are a lot of entrepreneurs that have actually – sorry, Maxim. Yeah. That get again blurred occasionally. When I'm, people understand um, – uh, like there are a lot of entrepreneurs that have come out of Naked, and it's it was a great culture to kind of develop certain skill sets. Yeah, um, they got it, but it wasn't seed round was really hard. It was not easy. How long did it take you? Do you it remember? It took about five to six months. Yeah. You know, fifty, hundred k checks at a time, um, and we re raised, yeah. you know, raised a decent sized seed. But it was it was certainly not easy. The, the the joke always is, you know, we started out in the pits, and you know, we eventually graduated to the Coliseum uh, as gladiators. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and the pits were like we'd go to these pitching competitions that oh, yeah. we saw on Meetup.com, and 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 we actually got like first place like five out of seven times, and we did not raise a dime from them. And then you start to realize if we're getting first place in these pitch competitions, and we're not raising anything. Are investors actually there? Uh, so we stopped doing that. <laughs> and but what it really helped with it was kind of honing the pitch. Uh, and then you start to you know you get a couple of investors, and our first you know investors came from Maxim, and like I said, they were like C level folks. Uh, and then they know people, and they introduce you to people. And then it kind of turned it turned into a numbers game for us, where I think I talked to like a hundred investors, and ten of them came in, so we had like a ten percent hit rate. So just hang on a sec, just yeah. a quick program intro. So this is Bay Area Ventures. Our guest is Farhad Farabakshian, who's the CEO of a 3D body scanner company called Naked Labs and talking about fundraising. I think it's important for people. So I assume there are people listening in yeah. who are thinking, God, this you know, this fundraising stuff for startups sounds pretty easy. You just go out there and you pitch lots of investors and you know, it's the land of opportunity in the Bay Area. But this is actually I think, Farhad, what you're saying is 
a much more realistic experience. This is more typical of what a lot of, you know, early stage startup founders go through. It's like it's not a slam dunk. No. no it's not a slam dunk. <laughs> He's still smiling about no, it. Yeah. No. You have to get really good at taking no's. And um, that that's just the way it is. I think there's a lot of pattern matching that happens in the Bay Area. Yeah. And, like, if someone's been burned by something, they'll immediately think about that. So I wonder without – I mean – this is where you need to choose your words carefully. But yeah. when you're sitting in front of Founders Fund and yeah. they they wrote your they led your round, mm-hmm. the Series A round. Yeah, was there one single or maybe two points that really kind of captured their, them in terms of thinking this this company has legs? I think um, as you think back on it, yeah, I think what they saw was we of course we had great sales numbers, but. We they also saw like areas that we struggled in, and we were very open with, yeah. Hey, like we almost died like that, you know, in that month. But here's how we turned it around. So I think we showed them resilience, and we showed that you know we have a, we're a strong team of engineers that know how to market a product. How and many are not going to fail? How many people were on your team when you approached your Series A round? Eight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Eight, but everyone was doing like five jobs. I mean, I've heard this too. Part of the Part of the appraisal that investors go through at the mm-hmm. institutional level is they want to see how the team solves problems, and they yeah. want to understand how you guys think through issues and mm-hmm. and come through to a resolution. Yeah, yeah. So we sh- we were pretty open with them. I think at, at some point during the meeting, like I pulled out like raw spread, like we went off the deck, we went off script, and shared yeah. like the de- shared like our spreadsheet and sales, yeah. CPA numbers, everything. Shift gears again. Um, you know, now you're the CEO of a company that has 50 employees. I assume your your headcount's continuing to ramp as you move forward. Yes. So how's that going? I mean, this is not something you learn in engineering school. How to hire? Uh, probably not something. I don't know. Did you have a hiring function when you were at Maxim? Yeah, I had to hire. So you had some prior experience. Yeah, but it wasn't good. Yeah. Um, I actually, yeah, I think most big companies don't do a good job on hiring. Um, that's not, my that's my opinion, of course. But it's not just hiring; it's also um, organizational management. Yeah. So how do you how do you do that? I mean, how what am I saying? How how did you learn the skill set necessary to grow from a group of eight folks to fifty to where you are today and running across three mm-hmm. different continents? Yeah, I I wouldn't say I figured it out. Okay. Um, I'd say I'm figuring it out, and I still make a lot of mistakes. Um, but I try to learn and reflect on every single mistake that we make. Hiring is by and you'll, you've probably heard this before. It's the most important thing um, that I can do as a founder and my co-founder can do. Uh, it takes a lot of time, but it's time not wasted. Uh, so we 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 made a conscious decision after our A that we're going to put everything into hiring, and we still made a lot of mistakes. How do you know? I mean, just to ask an obvious question, yeah. but how do you know it's a mistake? Uh, you know, because you have to, you know, make certain cuts, adjustments to adjustments the headcount head um, <laughs> when it doesn't work. And usually, when you've done that, it's too late, and yeah. and it's and it always disrupts the team. Uh, of course, some there are ones that are harder, ones that are more challenging than others. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 the hardest thing. People side of um, running companies by far the hardest. But you 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 sense that you're getting better at it. I mean, mis- mistakes are instructive, right? Yeah, yeah. We're definitely getting better at it. Yeah. Um, uh, and we need to continue to improve. I don't I don't think it's one of those things you just kind of go like, okay, you know what? We're good at hiring now, uh, because your company is growing. Yeah. So you need to make sure the lessons you've learned 
uh, are being passed down to the hiring managers that you have. Because I like I've interviewed so many people. Like there's certain kind of patterns I can recognize. Yeah. But does my team have that? And making sure that we instantiate those into a hiring philosophy uh, and standards that everyone can follow. So now we're talking about corporate culture, right? You just made the shift from hiring practices, and now you're trying to you're trying to onboard folks who think or, or adapt to the 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 ethic and the values and the mission statement that you have in mind mm-hmm. is that do i have that right that that's that sounds about right and that's going yeah. as that's going well as well um that's that's always also a work in progress um because yeah. as your team every time um you go through uh in growing your team there are specific kind of crossover points where you need to kind of rethink yeah how how your org structure um how to make sure your messaging and your vision as a management team uh, can actually get to uh, and get to all levels of the organization, um, and that that takes deliberate thought. I don't think you're ever done. Yeah, I, I just have heard. I'm here. I work with some other um, some other activities where I'm working with CEOs and and you know teaching classes and so forth with folks who are doing their own startup companies, and this theme of culture comes back, and everybody has their own style. They have their own sense of how a company should work, how mm-hmm. people should interact amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's what's I guess to ask a frank question, what's yeah. the style that you bring to the table? Um, one of one of the I guess core values we tried to instantiate in the company was fearless feedback with positive intent um, and making sure you seek the truth, but you seek it in a way that um, comes with no ego. Uh, and hard, it, to, hard to do that, which is really hard to do, and yeah. it's still something like we're constantly working on. Yeah, but I think we've gotten a lot better at. Um, that's always been really important to us. And the other, the other one is, um, we we're constantly doing things for the first time. And when you're doing things for the first time, and when you're a startup company and you get one shot to do it, you don't have the opportunity to make too many mistakes. So. Seeking multiple perspectives for key decisions is another, is another big one. Yeah, um, and you know, doing that in a time efficient way. Uh, those those two things are very important to us. Always seek uh, multiple perspectives from people who've done it before, at least done something similar. Yeah, um, yeah. and be open with each other. Uh, let me ask you a question. We only have a few minutes left, but um, stepping back from the trees, stepping back to the the forest. Mm-hmm. So as you reflect back, so you left a large company, Maxim, into a, a raw startup company. Um, from a career management standpoint, was that a – I guess the question is, do you like what you're doing, and was it the, the right thing to do to jump from a big company like Maxim into a you know, a startup like Naked Labs? I think it's, it really depends. I can't – I can only tell you my opinion. Yeah, but it's and, your and, opinion and I for want. Myself, yeah, for myself, I can't yeah. you know, uh, uh, tell anyone what to do. I think absolutely it was the right decision for me. I, I love my job. I, I love to learn new things, and one of the big reasons I left the corporate job was I just wasn't learning that much, and I could see when I don't know. At least this is the part that I I, I didn't enjoy. I could see exactly where I would be in five years, and like I'd have a bigger title, but I wouldn't know that much more, and that's the part that bothered me. This is, it sounds like the learning curve is flattening, and you sense that. Yeah, figuring it's time to get onto a different learning curve. That's correct. Yeah. So you like what you're doing? Yes. So do you sleep at night? I sleep. Yes. Enough said on that subject. Moving right along. Um, 
uh, I guess the question I would ask you is what is uh, if you're going to offer, you know, a, a pearl of wisdom to mm-hmm. people who are listening in who have never done a startup company before? Yeah. You know, what what is it that you're that you think is essential, the essential ing- ingredient? Um, I think one is to have a really thick skin. You're going to you know, I mean, you're going to get a lot of no's, especially when yeah. it, I mean, I, I did when it comes to fundraising. Um and the other one is, you know, focusing on people. I think um, you can never spend enough time with with the, without with your people, and because they're the ones that make it happen, uh, and making sure you build the right culture. Um, I guess the question is, I mean, you you like what you're doing, so you recommend it for other people. Um, I I don't like recommending like that's tell, okay yeah it's a public I, forum, yeah right? yeah <laughs> I, I, it depends it depends I think it, I, I a lot of friends like call me uh, and they ask me hey I want to leave my job to start a company do you think I should do it yeah um and my my answer is like if you're asking the question I don't think you're ready to do it it it, it should be apparent it should be like very clear to you yeah yeah. We are out of time, unfortunately. I've been speaking this hour with Farhad Farabakshian, the CEO of Naked Labs. Thanks, Farhad. It's been an interesting discussion. Thank you, Doug. Um, so if people want to learn more about Naked Labs, where do they go? Check out nakedlabs.com. It's a hard name to forget. Um, just ahead, we'll be talking with Clarissa Shen, who's the C- Chief Operating Officer of Udacity. This is the company that is the pioneer in online education for the tech industry. I'm Doug Collum. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Thanks. (laughs) For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 